Hello and welcome to the Marlen Institute podcast, which is coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Daniel Frost, a visiting research fellow at the Marlen Institute, and in today's episode we'll be discussing the excellent book Race, Rights and Reform, Black Activism in the French Empire and the United States from World War One to the Cold War. We're delighted to be joined by two expert guests. My first guest is the author of the book we're discussing today. Sarah Dunstan is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow, working on how philosophical and cultural understandings of what it meant to be human were deployed across the French and British empires and America in the mid-20th century. We're also delighted to welcome Ngozi Edegu. Ngozi is a PhD candidate in African history at the University of Beirut and a lecturer at the Department of History and Strategic Studies at Alex May Federal University in Iquo, Nigeria. Her research focuses on global and colonial history, print media and knowledge producing institutions. Sarah, I was, I was hoping we could begin by discussing the locations which you've chosen to consider in your book. Why France and the United States? To be honest, uh, it's because I saw in the archives a very particular relationship uh, between uh, black activists in the French Empire and in the American Empire that was quite distinct, uh, I argue, from the relationship with the British Empire. And a lot of this has to do with uh, the fact that both nations are republics. And so there's a, a political rhetoric of republicanism attached to ideas around citizenship and rights. And I was really interested in, in looking at the way that black activists worked with those ideas uh, to, to try and advocate for, you know, anti-colonialism and anti-racism. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. I think it's really interesting to, to consider that because the comparison so often uh, is with, with Britain. How do these Republican traditions differ? How, how did black activists engage with them differently? I mean, I think the first thing to note is that there's something very particular about the, the status of race in these different contexts. So, for example, uh, amongst the African-American community, their position in the United States is, uh, in the period in particular that I'm looking at, connected to this history of, of slavery and this history of second-class citizenship so a kind of uh, an experience of a very violent policing of of the the color line, as as W. B. Du Bois might put it, um, and that's quite distinct from uh, what, in many ways, is going on uh, in the in the French context, where you know many of the the black activists are colonial subjects, or they. They ha- they're colonial subjects who have an access to citizenship that's curtailed by the nature of being a colonial subject. So I'd, I'd start off by saying that they are coming from quite different positionalities in terms of how they think about their relationship to their respective republics, but also how they think about uh, their racial identity. Um, and I think those, those two things are, are really important, but I think in something that they often these groups often have in common is a return to kind of enlightenment revolutionary ideas of republicanism and ideas around equality and you know citizenship being something that's connected to political loyalty to republican principles rather than racial or cultural difference yeah i think it re- it really came through the in your book the sense that in the french in the french instance citizenship could be difficult to attain but once attained there was a measure of equality associated with that status that's certainly something that struck me reading for a very select few in the french empire uh, there was opportunity um really to 
to in many ways, particularly if you are a male and you belong to either the Antilles or to the the Quatre Communes in Senegal, there's an opportunity to participate in in political and, and public uh, French Republican life that is not necessarily there for the African American community. Um, I should also take this moment to say that you know, of course, there are um, many Black communities uh, living in the United States that aren't or don't identify in this moment as African-American. So I'm talking about people like, say, for example, the Jamaican novelist Claude Mackay, um, people from the the West Indies at this time, what what was the British West Indies at this time, who are kind of engaging with uh, African-American ideas of of race and citizenship at the same time as, uh, you know, forging connections within the French empire. The role of Caribbean activists in America is a kind of thread that comes through the book, um, and I guess that brings in a sense of that transatlantic connection. And I wonder if Ngozi wanted to comment on, on sort of how she sees her work comparing to yours. Well, there are a lot of similarities between uh, my work and um, Sarah's. But unlike Sarah, who focuses on the French Empire, my work looks at the British Empire. She did talk about how people in Senegal's four Um, communes had certain rights and privileges that the rest of um, colonial Senegal didn't have. And I compare this to my work on on, um, Nigeria, colonial Nigeria, and how people in the colony of Lagos had much more privileges than the rest of Nigeria because they were considered British subjects. And so there was a lot of things that they could get to get away with in respect to anti-colonial activism. And so my work in particular draws connections between Nigeria, the United States, and London, which was the imperial capital. I, I wonder um, if either of you would like to kind of expand upon that, the, the sense to which these a- activists understood the borders in which they were operating? Were there tensions around that? You know, they're, they're really giving voice to ideas about the struggle against empire and racism uh, in a way that's incredibly influential. And I think that those, certainly in the period that I'm looking at, this question of anti-imperialism and anti-racism, uh, these fights are so intertwined. Um, and I think that, that that's something that is apparent across the the political spectrum of the activists that I look at is that there's an understanding that you know empire and racism are ideas that need to be unpicked together if there's going to be if there's going to be progress. Well, you mentioned the the differential access to privileges in some colonies uh, versus others. What kind of consequences were there for the ways that activists related to one another across those lines? The focus of my work is not really on what we would call the elite, okay, the educated elite, who formed, you know, these activists that um, Sarah talks about in her book. Being in Lagos had certain privileges. Now, Lagos was the colonial capital of Nigeria, one of Britain's largest West African colonies. And so in Lagos, you had people who came from the area and who also became residents because they came you know to the to the colony to work were considered british subjects and so they were not amenable to the native customary laws and you know practices that the rest of nigerians were subject to 
And so you could see that there was this element of, um, they had this ability, you know, to make their concerns, concerns known without having to suffer from what I call the, the big stick of colonial um, oppression. So it was very difficult for the colonial government, you know, to like crack down on their activism because the press was present um, in the colony. They were, had more educated people in the colony. And also because of the networks that they had with their African-American counterparts, right? So you, you talk about um, Nam Jezikwe, for example, the owner of the West African pilot, who schooled in the United States in the 1920s and who had already established networks with some of these newspapers. And because of his education and his popularity, you know, anything that was happening in the colony of Nigeria was able, you know, he was able to disseminate it to his contacts abroad. And because of this, the colonial government was very um, careful about how they handled the kinds of agitations that he was championing. The West African pilots and the four other newspapers that he had in the provinces were all about championing the cause of the common man. So even though the common man, or the non-elite as I call them, did not have a voice because they were not really literate. Most of them were non-literate. His newspapers were able to champion the course on their behalf. Thank you, Ngozi. And that reminds me of, of Sarah in your in your book, The Place of uh, Black Social Scientists, African, African-American Activists with Regards to People in, in Africa and in the French Colonies. Could you speak a little bit more on that? those kinds of accesses to privilege uh, and how they were deployed, how they were deployed in aid of people in French Africa. One of the the points of intersection uh, between my work and, and Ngozi's work is this is this question of how print cultures amplify voices in different parts of of the diaspora. So you know, in your question, Dan, you you point to the way that you know African American sort of social scientists were involved in uh, analyzing. Uh, conditions in French colonies, for example, and, and people like uh, Rayford Logan um, and Horace Mann Bond, who's not, not a social scientist, but originally a, a professor of Romance languages, their expertise is, is utilised um, by, say, for example, State Department who want research done, but then they also take advantage of uh, the opportunities that are afforded them to, to spotlight racial inequality. Um, I think this question of international um, spotlighting is is a really important and key part of this period because, so say, for example, um, amongst African-American activists, they often uh, pointed to what they perceived as the colorblindness of French race relations in Paris to put pressure on the American government and to agitate for, you know, greater access to citizenship and, and greater rights. And this often got them into trouble with their um, with their diasporan uh, counterparts. So I'm thinking here of uh, a famous exchange between the African-American uh, scholar Alain Locke and uh, René Morin, um, who is the first uh, black man to win the, the famous uh, literary French prize, the Prix Goncourt, in which uh, Morin takes Locke to, to task for for you know suggesting that that France is much it treats its uh, its citizens of color in a much better fashion because you know he, he refers to 
the deployment of of Senegalese troops in the in the Rhine and and talks about some of the exploitation and and inequality there. And there's this sort of private correspondence between uh, Locke and Moran where Locke talks about, well, I know that things aren't perfect, but it's the attitude at least is better in the United than it is in the United States. So we can, you know, it, it's it's very clear that. Locke is is sort of utilizing or leveraging this myth of a of a colorblind colorblind France in order to, you know, try and see progress in in the United States, and you know I think that I think that these sort of multitudinous experiences are you know really picked up on you know it sort of later on in the century someone like Rayford Logan can come to France and and you know, right back for the crisis, um, which is the the journal of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, you know, that he's witnessed uh, these black politicians in the French National Assembly. And this is evidence of, you know, the incredible nature of uh, French republicanism vis-a-vis America. Whereas the reality is that, you know, the majority of, of people of, of colour in the French Empire don't have the vote at this point. So I think it's a, this idea of different perspectives and the way that different uh, individuals within the diaspora leverage different sort of ideas about, um, you know, what's going on in these respective republics, I think is a really interesting part of this history. Thanks. Yeah, I, I really found that particular exchange absolutely fascinating i think it's really reminiscent of the kind of contemporary conversations which you get uh with regards to quite frequent comparisons between british policing and american policing in which british policing is described favorably by african-american activists and that's felt somewhat controversial by activists in britain and these the sorts of complexity in these kinds of comparison and contrast I thought was really interesting in your work. Um, could I ask you both a little bit about the sorts of sources that you've been using in your work and especially around reliance on sources produced through state surveillance? Thank you for that question. So in my um, work, I also draw, just like Sarah, on surveillance documents that are found in personal files. And for me, these files provide counterviews to the, let's say, glorification and sainthood that was taking place on the pages of the newspapers. So in respect to the West African pilot, you see a lot of times in the newspaper where there's this sort of self-glorification by the owner of the newspaper, Namja Zikwe himself. Okay, But as one of his strongest critics um called him out for, that's Obafemi Awolo or another Nigerian nationalist, you know, Azikiwe was very skillful at lauding himself to the very skies. That was the, the words that Obafemi Awolo were used. And then you also had letters of, to the editor that were utilizing him for some action that he had done. So these surveillance documents now reveal, you know, a different side to the man behind this glorification. But at the same time, too, for my work, it also revealed um, the close relationship between Namja Zikwe and George Padmore. So the records established two things. The fact that Padmore regularly wrote for the West African pilot, even though we can see this on the pages of the newspaper itself, and that they had a close relationship. While both men had first established contact in 1926 in the United United States when uh, Namdi Zikiwi was a student there, by 1935, 
when Namjo Zikwe had returned to Africa, because I say Africa, he went to Ghana first, the Gold Coast, before returning to Nigeria, because he had a job there as the editor of the African Morning Post newspaper. So at that time, Padmore had propositioned Azikwe into making him a European representative of the newspaper that he was editing. In other words, he wanted to be what he later became known as the London correspondent, not only for the West African pilot, but for African-American newspapers. I find those um, surveillance documents very useful, even though my work actually focuses on the newspaper and its contents. I'm really interested by, by Ngozi's comments. I think for me, um, so one of the one of the things that I'm interested in with the book is is thinking through this idea of a kind of Gramscian um, cultural hegemony, right? So thinking about the way that ideas around race and racism are policed uh, not just by a physical force, although that's important, but in terms of uh, a dominant culture that justifies inequalities, right, along lines of, of race, gender, and culture. And I think police text for me uh, provided a really interesting window into what was considered the status quo by the authorities, by the ones that perhaps are meeting out this kind of physical uh, policing, um, and also to understand how the the activists and intellectuals that you know are my primary focus were understood by the state context in which they're they're moving, because of course many of them, I mean many of them are operating in a way that you know they're trying to. They're trying to receive funding from the state. They're trying to increase citizenship rights within the state, but they're also trying to change or reconfigure what that state looks like. So for me, the police text is is fascinating from that perspective because it, it makes clear what both individual organisations like, for example, the Parisian police or the, the colonial ministry or on the other side, you know, for example, the US military or the State Department, what these different bodies see as subversive uh, and what, uh, in contrast, they say is normal. So that was really important to me. It's also really key, as, as Ngozi mentioned, for her actors in really fleshing out uh, the, the trajectories or the context of people who we don't otherwise know that much about. So you might see the name in a byline of an article, um, but then that person hasn't left behind uh, and you know an independent personal papers that you can go and look at in an archive and so if you see their name cropping up in the police uh, text you can get you know obviously it's a it's a particular picture of you know coming from a framed by this context of are they subversive or not but you can get more information and you know a key example of that might be someone like Lamine Senghor who uh, was one of the tirailleurs Senegalais uh, conscripted during the war to fight for France um, and then in the early 1920s becomes uh, actually works for the French colonial ministry as a, as a spy to sort of infiltrate uh, p- potentially subversive anti-colonial groups in Paris but then is actually won over by said anti-imperial groups and goes on to be a key leader in sort of the the labor movement, et cetera, until his death in in 1927. What we know about him is very much limited to the the newspaper uh, sort of reports that he wrote and the, the reports on him by police surveillance. So I think it's really important in that respect. It's also really important because sometimes uh, these 
surveillance reports can get things incredibly wrong. And one example that's important for my story is the way in which uh, the French uh, colonial surveillance really conflated uh, Garveyism and that that brand of Pan-Africanism with Du Bois's Pan-Africanism uh, with uh, German Bolshevism, and these are these are quite separate <laughs> sort of political platforms and and uh, ways of thinking about empire and race. And so it's interesting to see how that then gets confused in these surveillance documents, and that gives an insight too into the motivation behind the way that perhaps state governments react to these organisations. And certainly, something that comes through is that quite complex relationship with organised communism. I wondered if. Sarah, you could speak a little to how that changed over time, particularly around the ideas of of non-alignment uh, as opposed to the kind of socialist anti-imperialism which could sometimes prove attractive. To begin, I'd probably separate it into sort of three different <laughs> ways of thinking. So the first is, um, you know, activist engage, engagement with Marx and, and Marxist thinking. And I think, you know, at, quite a few of the intellectuals I look at find Marx really useful as a, a framework to think through questions around uh, class and race and the relationship uh, between those two things. Uh, Emma Césaire is a, is a good example there. Um, same with C.L.R. James. Um, I think then, though, you need to distinguish that engagement with Marx from the way that what I might call institutional communism works. So there are a couple. At, this, this operates in my work at a couple of different levels. One is at the level of you know the common turn of the international, which is sort of linked back to Moscow, and you know many uh, black activists that I look at find initially, particularly in the immediate aftermath of World War One, um, with Lenin's attention to uh, the colonies and and to an openness to discussions around race. And of course, Claude Mackay is is a key example of someone who engages with the common turn around this issue of race. So I think there's an enthusiasm coming from sort of that, that sort of institutional communism around the potential for recruiting um, black activists. And that's quite distinct, I think, from what's going on at a national party level. So the, the French communist party and the American communist party are at various points, uh, not quite so willing to engage with race as a potential um, platform. And, I, you know, I go into multiple different examples of this and it ebbs and flows. So, for example, with the Scottsboro trial in the, in the early 1930s, the American Communist Party really does engage with the unfairness of the way that race operates in the criminal justice system in the United States. But this is, this is territory that they they lose when World War II starts and sort of their dedication to anti-racism is sort of subsumed in the in what they see as the bigger cause of you know making sure World War II ends in a way that's uh, positive for the Communist Party. Um, I think you you mentioned in your question as you move into the 1950s and 1960s. I think. Uh, Again, I'd, I'd like to emphasize the distinction between communism as an ideology and Marxism as a, a way of thinking about things and the reality of party politics. Because I think that, you know, when you see the, the kind of Cold War binary division of the United States and the Soviet Union, I think uh, many of the activists who whose 
politics are, you know, socialist or at least left wing, are very willing to play the United States off against the Soviet Union rather than to sort of commit to one side or, or another. And I think, you know, Senegal is a good example of that when um, uh, Senghor, who is himself sort of, I would say, a sort of self-professed leaning towards socialism, but when, when Senegal gains its independence, which is, a, you know, a topic that sort of goes beyond the reach of my book, but he's very willing to take funding from the Soviet Union as well as the United States and doesn't see that as intention with his sort of political uh, beliefs. And I think if you if you take it back to something like Bandung, the Bandung Conference, I think uh, for many of the anti-colonial activists who, who attend, I mean, obviously, there's a diverse range of perspectives here, and I'm, I'm not trying to generalize that. But I think that there's a tendency to distinguish between the politics of socialism or the politics of communism and the reality of engaging with a, a nation or empire like the United States and the Soviet Union. Ngozi, does, would you say that aligns with your work, the situation in, in Nigeria? What's the kind of experience of the relationship to socialism there? The period where we meet is during the Second World War and its immediate aftermath. And during this time, the Second World War, Nigerians actually invoked imperialist discourses and ideals such as freedom and liberty while they were serving the empire, despite the, contradic- um, sorry, the contradictions that this discourse posed in the colonial context. So even though Nigerians considered themselves citizens of the empire, which became like a new status and identity during the war, unlike before the war. I question what this citizenship meant for my target group, which, for instance, comprises of women traders and other non-elite groups who faced worsening economic fortunes during the Second World War. Because there was a lot of mobilization of men And so the women were left behind, and many of them, because of the new regulations and laws that were effectively, you know, used to control the production, the marketing and distribution of local products and and imported items, you know, women suffered disproportionately. And so um, even though there wasn't much reference to communism, women were were mainly concerned about the economy. This brings us um, to the fact that they were definitely anti-oppression and anti-exploitation. Whether they couched these in communist terms is is not something that I think they did because, you know, communism was the least on their mind. These discourses were were far from them. But anything that impacted on the economy was something that concerned them. You point out the question of periodization. And uh, Sarah, in your work, I thought you made a, a really interesting point around the importance of, of sort of seeing the post-war, immediate post-war period in the context of the, the interwar years. Your work concludes at the start of the 60s or the end of the 50s. Could I ask you about that decision to end there and also maybe tentatively how you would suggest things might have changed just outside of your period? Initially, I when I started the project, I knew I wanted to start um, at the end of World War One because I think that there's a moment of, of possibility and opening connected with 
the reorganization of geopolitical boundaries um, and the and the world that is is really interesting and really fosters uh, dialogue specifically between um, the activists that I look at in in the US and in the French Empire. The end date was much harder <laughs> uh, to decide. Uh, initially, ambitiously, I thought I'd go into the the 70s and really look at um, sort of black power and, and those kind of connections. But I think what I increasingly found in the material was that what I was looking at from 1919 through to the early 1960s was a particular generation. Uh, it's a generation that came of age in that post-First World War I period and were involved at various stages in many of the same projects. So people, for example, who were either at the centre or the periphery of Du Boisian pan-Africanism from 1919 onwards were kind of cropping up again and again uh, in, in other projects that were connected to those kind of uh, trans-imperial anti-racist movements right through to the 1950s and 60s. But that relationship changed, I think, fundamentally with the fragmentation of the French Empire. And it's not to say that these relationships didn't continue, but it's that the the points of commonality and the, the nature of the relationship, I think, really changed. So um, I'm thinking here in terms of you know, we, we've spoken earlier in this this podcast about why I was interested in, in France and America in particular, and this is to do, I think, with perhaps a shared language of republicanism or at least a shared uh, confusion over republicanism and its uh, and access to, to citizenship rights. And I think once the Fifth Republic break up into independent nations, the centre shifts Right, so whilst so people like Leopold Sedar Senghor certainly continue their relationship with many of the African American intellectuals and activists that they've been talking to since the 1930s. In this particular instance, he does so as the you know the new president of of Senegal, and so his relationship with the United States and with the United States uh, government takes on a very different nature. So for me, I think that that was really, that difference was really key to ending in the early 60s. And I think part of that too is that there's a change in the United States in the kind of politics that are that are around civil rights and citizenship. And, you know, people like Carol Anderson have done a brilliant work, to, um, brilliant job talking about how there's a transition from thinking about human rights to thinking in very nationally framed uh, civil rights discourse uh, in, when you go from the end of World War II through to the 1960s in the civil rights movement attached to Martin Luther King Jr., etc. And I think that that's, that's a really important aspect of why I ended in the early 60s as well because once that civil rights legislation uh, goes through, then the job of disentangling uh, racism from, you know, socioeconomic structures has a less kind of clear-cut trajectory in the late 1960s. And I think that that also changed the nature of what African-American activists were looking for in their relationships with Francophone activists. Reading your book, uh, I had a question in my head throughout, which was around James Baldwin's return to France um, in the 1970s. But I think what you've just said makes complete sense. There's a, there is a certain generational point in that when he does return to France, but he's already then speaking consciously from the position of somebody of a 
older generation of activists uh, supportive of, of younger people in struggle. Um, so I think that generational sense of, of self is a fascinating one. And Gozi, could you speak to your uh, decision around finishing prior to independence? I would say that my work is less about race and rights, but about socioeconomic grievances within a specific context, the newspapers and the particular newspaper, the West African Pilot, um, started in 1937, which is the start of my research. And um, I ended in 1937, even though it's no, it was not the time or the year that Nigeria attained independence, it was when we attained self-government, which I think was the goal of um, decolonization. And so even though the periodization about the moment when decolonization actually began is is debatable. Some would say you could even trace it back to the 1920s, the First World War, and, or even the late 19th century. I chose 1937 primarily because it marked what one writer called the end of an epoch and the beginning of another in the Nigerian newspaper industry with the arrival of the West African pilot, which by the 1940s, became the most widely disseminated newspaper in Nigeria, despite the fact that less than 6% of the population could actually read and write in English. Because if I haven't mentioned it before, the newspaper itself was written in the English language. These are the things that informed my um, choice of years. Both of your work really highlights the importance of print and of literature and culture in struggle. I wondered if either of you had any thoughts on how, on the history that, that you uh, have researched might be read by activists today. It's kind of contemporary relevance to discussions around culture, uh, politics uh, and, and racial grievances. I would start by saying that it is... In the period that I'm looking at, print culture becomes so important in many ways because it's 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 one of the few media in which uh, people of color have a voice. And what what I mean by this, uh, so if you think if you take the French Empire for example, you know we've talked about this idea of of police text and surveillance, um, and the reality of that for many of you know the francophone activists I look at is that this is the the only space in which they can you know critique the french empire without uh, repercussions and in many ways this is this is specific to to paris the the kind of liberties that are possible to take in the parisian landscape are not the same as those that can be taken in say for example uh, french west africa or in in the antilles you know, this is a, a key moment um, at the end of World War II for for someone like M.S. Césaire and, and Tropique, which is a, a journal that, you know, critiques uh, the Vichy uh, sort of a control of the island. You know, that's the very first um, journal, if you like, or newspaper that's produced the, on the island for the island, you know. So there's a that that's important. And also the idea that you know, poetry, for example, kind of as a creative outlet, but also as a political outlet, becomes incredibly important in the 1930s in the in the context of France because it's a space in which you can be political without necessarily 
fearing violent reprisal. And I think that that's something that's important to think about, certainly in my context, in, you know, why print culture I mean, it's important in that it's about it's about communication. It's about sharing ideas. It's also important in that it's it's a medium that's produced by the black community for the black community and beyond, but which is in which they can have you know share their opinions, hopefully without fear of reprisal. And I think that's very important in terms of relating it to a contemporary context. I think you know these kind of things remain incredibly important as for um, for discussion for sharing differences of opinion. I mean something like présence africaine, you know, Alioune Job specifically starts it because he wants to have a space in which people can disagree, right? And I think that's really important for for activism because different people have different ideas about the best way to to proceed. I think social media is a bit of a a game changer though. I think that that means that the dynamics of activism, there's a there's a greater sort of instantaneity to the way that people can exchange ideas or mobilize. First of all, start by talking about my target um, group, which is um, the group I call the non-elite. And even though I'm grappling with this term, um, and here's why, the non-elite, who I refer to specifically as the non and semi-literate in English-speaking peoples of Nigeria, comprised over 90% of the population in the 1950s, according to one scholar. And in particular reference to women and girls, one figure puts um, the statistics at 99%. So if I say that these people are the majority and were of weighty importance in the decolonization process, why do I refer to them in terms of what they are not? Okay, and even though they have other names for this group, the masses or the ordinary people in in, lit- in the literature, I don't think it does justice to my target group if I use these terms. So now that I've clarified that, I want to talk um, about the fact that even though my work focuses on newspapers and trying to tease out the voices and the actions of the um, of of these actors in what can be considered an elite enterprise. You know, because you have to be literate before, you know, you could actually like send content to the newspapers and all that. But it was an important site or source. I mean, the newspapers where events like resistance was occurring. You can actually think about it as like the Facebook of the 1940s and the 1950s. And so, for instance, the West African pilot as a source actually blurred or even erased the lines between the literate and non-literate as the newspaper itself, was written in more simple English compared to its predecessors or contemporaries because the literate population was quite small. So it catered to their needs, but the West African pilot came and changed all this. So even if you had just some education, you were able to read this paper aloud to the non-literate and in most cases interpret into the local languages. And in contrast to, for example, letters of petitions, newspapers were like another way, you know, a more public form of expression. Because when you petition, for example, the resident in your locality, you know, the British representative, you know, it is easy for them to dismiss your concerns, you know, or ignore them. But content of the newspaper was very difficult to ignore because it reached a much wider audience. And in some cases, you see that some petitions that were sent to the British representatives or the native authorities in the protectorate, remember, 
uh, as opposed to the colony of Lagos, the protectorate was under indirect rule. So they were ruled by, the Nigerians were ruled by their, in quote, traditional rulers. Okay. So these letters of petition were also printed in the newspapers, providing an even wider audience, like sort of appeal to the public, you know, to put pressure on the colonial government to to act. So I feel that newspapers, even though you could call them um, an elite space, was a space where a lot of action by the non-elite were taking place. Thank you. And, and on that note, I think we should... Uh, draw things to a close. I'd like to thank both of our guests this week, Ngozi Adegu and Sarah Dunstan, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also find the Marlins Institute on social media, and if you sign up to our mailing list on our website, you'll always hear first about our future events. Thank you all.